Okay. Howdy, y'all. Uh, this is Dan Spanger and uh, Dr. Mark Draper back again. Um, we're in a series now where we're starting to think through uh, what is the American Republic, and that's a difficult question nowadays because I think we all know the Republic is somehow in jeopardy. Well, let me put it differently. We know that America or the West, maybe, if we think broadly speaking, is in jeopardy. Maybe a lot of us don't understand that what's really in danger here is this concept of a Republic, which is historically unique. And we unpacked that um, a couple uh, couple sessions ago. Um, and this one, we want to look more at recent history and ask, what is going on in the Republic now and in the last several decades? Because I think we all feel like something's slipping, something's changing. And it's always hard. And I know, Dr. Draper, you can confirm this. But as a historian, I really like things that have happened a long time ago because I have a chance to sort of see how it settles out. And we're in the middle of the confluence, right? We're in the middle of the, the chaos right now. So it's really hard to get our hands around. And what, what Mark and I have been doing, and the point again, just to reiterate, is that we really want to go through this as a way of helping Christian thinkers negotiate their own lives here. And it's one thing to negotiate a space when you can see it, uh, when you can map it, you know where the mountains are, you know where the holes are, you know where the ri rivers are. I think the problem for a lot of us is that we don't know where the pitfalls are. Um, the, the, it's almost, if you remember the first of the, sci of the um, space trilogy by C.S. Lewis, that on Venus, the, the soil was actually a ground floating on water, and so mountains were rising and valleys forming all within a space of a few minutes. And I think that's sort of where we find ourselves. And here's where I think Mark and I are hoping to be helpful, is that we can not necessarily know how this is going to change in the next 10 minutes, but we kind of know how the flux and change have brought us to this point in time. So again, helping us to negotiate that space so that we're uh, at once living out our citizenship in heaven while trying to navigate well this uh, changing soil here on earth. So, yeah. uh, and, and, and Mark brought up a question as we were chatting before this, which is probably a good way to get into this topic. Again, we're looking at maybe the, the recent history. And the question is, what does it mean to be liberal or what is liberalism? And I, I want to set that up well. We're not saying that there is this thing called liberalism and that's confusing and conservatism is not confusing because, of course, that's not true. But one way to get at the changes we're facing is how has this idea of liberalism changed in the last several decades may give us a bit of a handhold. And then we'll look at, of course, what conservatism is also maybe, if not at the end of this lecture, in the last one. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start this off uh, probably where we should end. Mark, do you think we could come up with a, with a general definition <laughs> of liberalism, capital L or lowercase l, I'll leave that up to you, that is serviceable for this conversation. Ha, I wish. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wish, I wish. Um, I, I think that's part of the problem, yeah. is that even the scholars can't define this term. Uh, the, the, the people who identify as liberals themselves have trouble identifying the term. Uh, and it's, it's more of, uh, maybe it's more of um, ideas swarming in it, it together more than something very concrete. Okay. Um, and so it, it certainly has uh, its roots uh, in the Enlightenment coming out of, you know, rejecting uh, authoritarianism, uh, rejecting whether that would be the king, uh, the monarchy, or the church. Uh, definitely an, an attempt for uh, to construct values uh, on a with human reason and human autonomy. Um, there is a sense of, of liberation and mm. to, to be freed from constraints of sorts, uh, particularly authoritarian authoritarian constraints. 
Um, but it was also uh, because it was it was nebulous at its beginning and had a nebulous sort of development uh, from the Enlightenment through the 18th century into the 19th century. Uh, it, it didn't have a, a set point where it said, okay, this is where we're going to end up. Mm. It, it was more of this is a trajectory we're going to experiment on. Um, Can I take that for a second, Mark? Because I think yeah. that's an interesting point. And, 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 and is, the, is the idea, because you say the root word of liberalist is uh, liberalism is liberal or to be liberal or to liberate. You're all talking about freedom. What you seem to be saying is that it almost starts off in a negative that liberal is a way of breaking down, but it doesn't tell you then what it is because it's really focused on getting away from authority. Is, is that one of the problems here? Is that the word liberal, that's root really is more of a negative than a positive term? I, I think it can be taken that way, right? I, I think if, you, if you're if you a devotee, it's not a negative, it's, it's a positive, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's we're, we're liberated, we're free, right? Um, but it, it really, it's, 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 a, it's a reaction, right? All these movements are reactions of sorts. And what is it, what it, what did this movement, how did it, was it birthed in the 18th and 19th centuries and how did it evolve? Mm. Uh, it, it evolved from responding, reacting to situations in the 18th century um, and really trying to, I think when you, even when you look at, at Locke or you look at John Locke and you look at Irvin Immanuel Kant, uh, sort of these fathers of liberal thought, the, the ideas is, is can we come up with uh, human, uh, can we come up with objective truths without having to point back to some authoritarian source document of some sort? Right. Um, and, and so that I think is a big, that's a big part of the starting process, right? These, this, um, you know, it, it, or go back to Jefferson, we find these truths self-evident, right? right. That, that's, that's a classic line for, for uh, liberalism. Um, you know, and then, and the thing is, there's multiple flavors of it, which also makes it more complicated. So I, I think we're kind of telling you what it's not more than what it is. Well, right? but I think that's, that's part of the problem here. And I, I apologize for sloppiness of language. When I'm thinking negative, I'm thinking it's an against something rather than a for something. And that really, it tells us we're against, I think you've said it well, where it's against authoritarian, it's against something that predefines, I think that's Jefferson wants, right? The yeah. constitution, although he's not here for the writing of it. The idea is it's an evolutionary process. We, we don't want anything confining or constraining the electorate. When the electorate decides something to move in a certain direction. And so this liberal idea has this idea that we're really trying to find where authoritarianism, preconceived notions, um, constraints can come down. And we're constantly trying to sort of guard against those. And so to be free in the negative sense means to find authority and constraint and get rid of it. Um, but that doesn't say a whole lot about what we're trying to accomplish. Right. So much as what we're trying to ward off or stop. And I think this, that becomes interesting because we want liberal, we want freedom um, becomes a problem because then you have to find what it is that's a challenge to our freedom. So is it a king? Um, is it a political system? Is it a, a, a wealth class, right? So you can say, well, I'm a liberal because I'm against kings, but I don't mind corporations. Well, someone else might say, well, but the freedom of the individual is constrained when a corporation controls my money source or so it, is it, is it confusing in its root to say we are people dedicated to freedom, if that's what liberal means, and I'm not sure it does, but that's just a thought, dedicated to freedom because now our entire job is to find out where freedom is threatened, and that could be from any direction, right? How, how do we know where the greatest threat is? Is it politics? Is it language? Is it society, culture, race, economics? 
what, what does it mean to be liberal then? Right, and I think the, the, other, the other piece of this though too is that it, it had a very optimistic outlook. Mm. Um, you know, the, the, the capacity for humans to, um, to uh, be self-determining uh, in this way. And in, 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 in the positives, I mean, it, it did help to birth uh, some uh, humanitarian movements, right? Like uh, in working in some cases alongside evangelical Christians with abolition and, and prison reform and education and things like that. I think what we're experiencing today with liberalism is the last 75 years of liberalism has had, it has gone through many iterations and evolutions as the West has responded to World War II. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's this idea, is it, is it moral to write poetry after the Holocaust? Mm. You know, that, that sort of demeanor get, cook, gets cooked into it. And so uh, I think the liberalism that we've been watching in our entire lifetimes since, since the Vietnam War uh, has been uh, a very different liberalism than what people would have experienced in the 18th and 19th yeah. centuries and may have what they probably even what they would have experienced in the early 20th century. Yeah. I think that's where this gets so complicated today because we still use these words liberal and conservative. Uh, but, you know, it's almost like a princess bride moment. Does that word mean what you think that it means? <laughs> right. And, and, and that's that's where I think we need to kind of help clear away the weeds because like you said people say it was like well i don't even know what a liberal and conservative looks like anymore yeah uh, you know it was so much easier in 1968 when the yeah. conservative was william f buckley and the liberal was gore vidal all right now we know where to go <laughs> right, right, yeah yeah and i think that and maybe that's one way just to help help understand because you've said before and i think rightly so um and i would agree that the election probably of 1964 uh, or 1960 really was probably a, a critical moment because it was the last moment in which most political parties were fairly centrist. Yeah. Democrat, Republican, but certainly not something you would call conservative or liberal. It, it, there's, there's problems with FDR, of course, the development for the first time of a, a liberal perspective or a conservative perspective. But 64 changes that dramatically and 68 sort of accelerates the, the change um, to the point now where, you know, the Democrat, we would say, is, you know, uh, synonymous with liberal capital L liberal policy. Um, and if, if we take this, if we take what we're talking about maybe and, and make it more concrete for the listener, is it safe to say that it depends on where our political culture on the left for the moment speaking decides where oppression is coming from to decide that's what liberalism is. So if you go back to, you know, the 1960s, um, a lot of the frustrations from neo-Marxian or Marxian was frustrated with economic power. And so we debated about taxes and wanting to take economic power away from corporations and make sure we give it to the people through government. And so maybe a, a leftist or a liberal was someone that wanted to empower the individual by freeing them from the economic constraints of corporations and the wealthy. But something's changed since the 1990s where it's not economic terms. Now it's different things that we feel oppressed by. And the liberals very interested in going after those points of oppression, like how people speak to one another or whether you hold a door for a woman um, or, you know, the, the kind of words you use all of a sudden become a new way of oppression, almost like they were afraid of kings back in the 1770s. Now we're terrified of a white male holding the door open for a woman. And so liberalism now has to find its way of attacking. Now, this is the frustrating part to attack that power, the power of a male, let's say you need another power, maybe power of government. 
maybe the power of law, maybe the power of a riot, something, but you, you've got to unwind the one power you find to be destructive in this case. And that creates a lot of confusion because we're pointing at different targets all the time as to who to blame for what's gone wrong. And, and I think, Dan, the, the, the big, the way I wrap my head around this is in the 18th and 19th centuries, when liberalism and the Enlightenment, you know, liberalism is a product of the Enlightenment, there, there really is this hope, this desire. And you know, we as Christians, we, um, particularly Reformed Christians, really rankle at this, this idea of sort of uh, objective human autonomy, right? Right, right. There really wasn't a sense that, that you could get at objective truth even for things like morality and how to run a country. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's Kant's uh, exercise, right? And, and Jefferson's line, these truths are self-evident. What, and, and that for a long time was sort of the, the part of the liberal movement, was seeking objective truths to liberate humanity. I, I think the difference though, is when, when, when the West experiences the postmodern turn, and starts to deconstruct everything, including the Enlightenment. Now, all of a sudden, the liberalism of Jefferson and Locke and Hume and, and Kant that's seeking objective truth, then with the postmodern turn, all of a sudden the deconstructive scalpel gets put in there, used in there. And all of a sudden now we're saying, well, wait a minute, there's ideas baked into the Enlightenment and liberalism that we don't agree with anymore. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't objective to begin with. Rather, it's, and so what we're experiencing today in some cases is this idea of liberalism is, is, is you could be people like us where we're kind of thinking intellectual historians, what it used to be. Uh, but today, in many ways, that, that term is a debated term. There yeah. would be people who would say, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a liberal anymore. You know, I, I'm, they might just say I'm a Marxist or they might just say, uh, I'm a critical theory person. Yeah. Uh, and so you, you, you have this, what's happening is it's not even just looking for who's being oppressed, but even the very language of liberalism is now seen to be as oppressive. Right. Well, okay, let's, let's use an example for this, maybe to get some yeah. clarity. And uh, we had talked about different people who are leaders in the classically liberal movement. So we'll use John Stuart Mill for a moment, who has yeah. done, did a lot on free speech and the ability to you know if, I may not agree with you, but I'll fight to the death to defend your right to say it. So that was considered liberal because I think you make a, a, a very good, and I hope that the listeners hear this, that the, the architecture originally of liberalism was to isolate what you think of as arbitrary power, the will of a king, the subjective authority of a pope, um, because they can uh, assert their will on you. So I need to appeal to something that's stable and objective so that I can challenge this very, you know, mercurial, unpredictable, overly personalized subjective authority of these people. So what's that objective standard? Well, the individual's rights as Jeffersonian ideas, certainly natural law was one. There's all sorts of things they pointed to. So, so Mill is looking at this as this universal concept that if we give everyone the right to speak and no one prejudges it ahead of time, and I'll use a little William James and John Dewey, Sooner or later, this will shake out practically speaking, right? So right. if I claim the moon is made of cheese, I should have every right to say it because sooner or later we'll get there and prove it's not. So the idea of liberalism was the idea that there is a universal, I think this is right, Mark, mm -hmm. a universal base where if we just start heading in that direction, we will arrive at truth without having to be told what it is. And so freedom is the route to truth because truth is objective. It's there. 
as long as you had to refine it. Now, if that's the case, Mark, and then this, this is what sort of classical liberalism, now we're in a day and age where if someone gets up and says something that's a, let's say just a, a theory, um, an open expression, here's how I think things work, as used to be considered, just a route to truth. Say whatever, moon's made of cheese, that's your, that's your opinion. Yeah. Now, free speech like that, if we use that term, is now considered a danger to public safety. Yeah. Right, so, so what used to be considered liberal is the open search for truth and every individual, I think you're right, so we can head in that direction. Now, we're debating whether free speech is actually good and whether it actually will yeah. get us there because maybe being free in our speech will be another form of oppression. So we're not actually talking about objective truth anymore, are we? We're not, we're, we're, we're not. We're, we're, we're coming at it more from uh, one group thinks they know what is truth and that they will teach us. And, and, and I think the, 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 the big difference too is that with liberalism, like I said, it started off as a trajectory. It wasn't so much they said, you know, by any means necessary, we're going to get to this point. Uh, and so there was a, it was a messy uh, debating place in the public square to, to, to have this conversation. And um, where, what, what seems to have happened, say, from 68 to 2020 is that because of the more uh, influence of critical theory into uh, into this, where you know you look for those oppressive groups and and you kind of set everything up in this binary, either you're oppressor or, or oppressed. Um, now even language itself can actually be threatening to people. Yeah. Uh, and and so for instance. Um, there's a term that's being used now uh, not to refer to people from South America as Latinos. Um, you, there are people calling them Latinx. And the reason for that is that the idea is that Latino is a male gendered word. And why are we calling men and women or people who don't have identify in either one of those binaries by this gendered term? So we're going to construct a new word for this new reality, as it were. Um, and therefore, you can almost see where you, you could see where someone says, well, I, I don't call me a Latino, you know, I, I'm Latinx. And so the language itself actually starts to have to change uh, and be shaped to address these new realities where there's not even a space to kind of debate the validity of the X versus the O anymore, it feels like for some people. Yeah, yeah. So how does language become, if we're going to stick with our, our general view here that, that liberalism is the, the ambition to, if we can say anything consistent about it across the eras, the way to get rid of authoritative structures so that the individual can find freedom. And I, I do think that what that meant in the 19th century was so that we could pursue truth, objective truth, and find it free of authority and superstition, however you want to say that, in this postmodern time, post-1960s America, yeah. Now the idea is we're not headed towards an objective truth. We're just trying to free all individuals from whatever constraints around them. Yeah. How does language, and I think you're right, this, is, this has become probably the most obvious and strange turn of all of this, is that language has now become the number one oppressive tool, where it used to be money with the Marxist up through yeah. World War II, and before that it was politics and government. Now it's come down to language. Um, is it still liberal in any sense of the word then, that we're 
telling people they can't use the word Latino. I mean, isn't that taking away my freedom to think? Yeah, it's it, right. This is and this is this is sort of where you know when you read some of 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 the the literature, it's sort of in the in the liberal what we'll call this big umbrella of liberalism today. Uh, you have people who are classic liberals like that who. You know, they, they these are not card-carrying conservatives. You know, they they don't go to CPAC. Uh, you know, they they listen to NPR. You know, they're they're not uh, conservatives in that way, but they're they consider themselves sort of classic liberals, and and have some trouble with this type of thing because what they really appreciate is that public square where you debate these things, and and, and through the dialogue you should get to the moon is not made of cheese. Right. Rather, rather than saying, you know, the moon is made of Melmac and everyone has to agree with that and right. we're going to impose that. Um, and so, but language itself, I think we're actually starting to see a change. I think one of the biggest places we're starting to see this change in our own time right now is just the term racism, right? The, the people in the, what we'll call the new left, the critical theory left, the critical theory liberals, uh, have a different definition of racism than uh, maybe even a classic liberal would have. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's 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 far more it's 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 more insidious. It's it's more hidden, mm -hmm. uh, and 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 you almost have to you almost need a dictionary to to understand how the language is changing. Yeah. Um, and I, I guess I'll ask you a question too, Dan. I mean, you you study the, the the late 18th century and the French Revolution. You love a good conversation on the French Revolution. Mm -hmm. Did we see a similar thing happen in the 1790s, where language itself starts to change, or you know, we change the days of the month or something like that? Yeah, yeah. No, that's a good point. Yeah, the so and that's that raises the question: Is are we are we really somewhere innovative, or are we doing something all over again? I think as a story, that's what concerns me. And I think you're right. Yeah, the French Revolution that decided, and I think similarly to what critical theory would do eventually, is that your your identity as a person was determined by your status in society, and so, and so even even to use let's say ancient Roman names for the days of the month is automatically to control and contort your mind and push you back to authoritarianism. So if you're going to use let's say a Catholic surname, or if the streets in Paris are named after, you know, um, Christian heroes just the very presence of that sign and talking to your friends about it raises it to a level that now puts you somewhere different. It now puts the authority of the church over you because now the church's authority and character and virtues are now defining roadways and days of months. And, and even for the French, the, um, the, the, the days of the week, right? Because even seven days in a week um, was originally a biblical concept. And so um, French revolutionaries, do away with a seven-day work week and institute a 10-day work week, which is supposed right. to be far more scientific. And if we want to talk about the superiority of religion, I'd say the seven-day work week over the 10-day work week, because science gave us a 10-day work week. But, well, I, but I think and Stalin tries to do the same thing, right? The, in, the, in the Russian yeah. Revolution, they want to get rid of the weekends. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. and the whole country is on this very strange working schedule, and the rhythms of life and community just get totally disrupted. So what we see in some revolutions, and I think this is what's so important to get out about the Republic is, there are certain revolutions that are far more radical yeah. than other revolutions. And the American Revolution, in comparison to say the French Revolution oh and the Russian revolutions, is it's, it's a walk in the park. Yeah. Uh, it, it's a so, walk but, in but, the park. But why? And I, I think, so, so to your point, I guess, I guess is, is the liberal movement, maybe, maybe not the classical, but is, is the new liberalism 
slated to always sort of trend towards the French Revolution, towards the Chinese Revolution. I mean, I mean, if we've gotten rid of this concept that there's an objective truth, which I think classical liberalism provides the, the root to something we would consider objectively true without claiming what that is, right? That, I think that was the real genius in one way and the real flaw of the, of the classical liberalism. It admitted that objective truth is out there. It just wouldn't give anybody the right to claim it, which, which, which right makes good sense. I mean, if someone's going to come along and say, I know the objective truth, then we've got to give that person authority. And now we're sort of trapped back in, you know, an authoritarian system. So to claim that objective truth is real and out there and that the only thing we can do is pursue it, never arrive at it, that, that creates this space where we can debate and why a revolution can't ever be too violent because no one ever knows exactly where this thing's going. But Robespierre knew exactly where the ship had to land, as did Stalin, as did Mao, as did Pol Pot. They all knew where the ship had to land. So is there something in, in this new left idea, and I think that's the right term for this, that sort of has that tendency baked into it? Because I think that's what a lot of us are afraid of. Like, we hear the criticism of free speech and we hear this very uncompromising movement towards whatever it is, whatever ism we're about at the moment, that it almost feels like we can't go down this road without ending up back in the guillotines of Paris. Well, when you when you park a guillotine in front of Jeff Bezos' house, that sort of makes you wonder that if that's true, right? Uh, which which Point happened. Made for us. And, and, and I, I think you're right. I think what, one of the things that uh, Americans have, probably don't realize about their own history is that our, our revolution was fairly tame yeah, in, well, as revolutions go. And in many ways, the American revolution is, is uh, Brit it, it, it's almost a, it's a civil war in some ways too, right? It's the yeah. British of the new world saying to the British of the old world, we don't think you're living up to what it means to truly be British. Yeah, that's right. Right, like you, you're not really living up to British liberalism and right. liber British democracy constitution or mon uh, the, the, the monarchy in the constitution, and so it's it's different. It's not attempt to uh, remake ever all the categories. Now, in some cases, they do. Right, they they don't have a king, and that's just a radical thing. They do have they don't have a state church. That's a radical thing. Uh, they they attempt to construct uh, things like the electoral college and the and the balances of power to balance it out. I think one of the things too that that say a classic liberal and you see I think you see this in the American construction of things is that they realize that humanity does have a depravity problem, yeah. and that's why you need checks and balances, right? That's that's why it has to be there. You you don't overly assume that humanity is so good that they they they'll just always do the right thing. Uh, so I think that's an important part. So I think the, 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 the revolutionary moment we're in today, what I think is fascinating is while on one hand, it's, it's, it's using the language of the French Revolution. It's using, uh, it's, it's obviously using Marxist language. There's no denying that. Um, but it's, it's uh, it, at the same hand, it's, it's, same, it's, it's actually attacking the the liberal ideas that constructed the republic yeah yeah uh and and that's where uh it gets it gets dicey right and and, and again i think this idea of liberalism a hundred years from now where is could be a very different there could be a very different uh history yeah uh, of what what liberalism is you know is are, are marxist liberals yeah right i mean that's i, I you know or, or was was Marx really a critique of liberalism? Right, right. Uh, so I think that's that's part of this, and I think 
once terms become politicized, then all of a sudden they no longer have the meaning historically of what they were. They have the meaning of what that means at the moment. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And that's an important piece because I, this is where the confusion of language comes in. I think you're right. There's, there was this thing, and we're, we're using here for the sake of this recording, probably the traditional term, which is classical liberalism. Um, classical liberalism being again, this, this idea that there is truth out there, it's just no one has any one claim to it, which was to your point, a revolutionary idea of its time because everyone assumed that certain truths came to people that God had chosen either to be kings or popes or priests or whatever. So to assume that no one has a special privilege to know what the absolute truth is, is wonderfully freeing. But then that's a worldview that takes us through constitutionalism. It accepts slow reform. Um, it, doesn't really, it doesn't really attack social inequalities and economic inequalities, partly because the truth, whatever it is, has to be arrived at. Maybe inequality is part of truth. Nature is unequal, right? I mean, I think a lot of the early founders referred to the inequities in the natural world. You've got slow rabbits and fast rabbits. I mean, not everyone's the same speed rabbit. But then something does change, and this is where it becomes critical for us to talk about this, and I don't know if we can get to all this today, but something, and I would, I would peg it somewhere in the 1840s, probably initially to come along, but something changed where the idea of liberal is no longer that pursuit of that objective truth. And I, and I don't know how exactly to say it, but I would say it almost now focuses on not trying to find the objective truth as if it's out there, but it's going to destroy any construct system or person that takes away the autonomy of the individual. Mm -hmm. Almost as if the almost objective truth is no longer the goal of this. I, I think of our own um, our own approach to coronavirus. If you want a, a, a narrow example, if you remember when we started this whole thing, it was the whole goal was to flatten the curve, and so you act in a certain way just to keep the number. Not we're all going to get it, but can we slow it down for the hospitals? Now you change the goal to say we don't want anyone to ever get it again. They're both dealing with the coronavirus, but they're two entirely different strategies mm -hmm. that redefine the human approach. And I, I guess for liberalism. How did we get from this idea that liberalism is this open pursuit for truth to the point now where it's actually the, re the rejection of anybody who violates the autonomy of the individual? Because, Mark, I think this is where we feel it. Liberalism used to be about freedom. Now it's about the proper use of power. So you could say, you know, I'm, I'm a true liberal because I'm going to use the bullhorn, uh, the, the gun, if necessary, to shut you up because you're a danger to society. Where a liberal used to say, I want everyone to speak. Because I want, I want every approach to find out what the moon's really made of. Don't limit the conversation. Now, if someone who's a particular person says the moon's made of cheese, we need to do everything we can to shut everyone up so, so that one person has the right to say that. Yeah, yeah. Where does that well, transition happen? How well, you know, it made, you said something interesting. You said, was it somewhere in the 1840s? And we think it, it, this is the time period when Marx is writing yeah, the Communist yeah. Manifesto and Das Kapital. And... Um, and it's also the, the, the period of revolution in Europe, right? You have the 1830 revolutions, then you have the 1848 revolutions. Uh, some of those 1848 revolutions were socialistly, they were socialist revolutions. Certainly the French Revolution under Proudhon. Uh, you know, yeah. they, they did have that bent. Um, yeah. And so uh, you can see that. I, I think one of the things I, I've, I've read, read and have heard from what I'll call the new left is that th this idea that Marx had created this alternative eschatology, right? That, mm. you know, if you, if you play this right, eventually the proletariat will revolt, right? And, and mm. overturn. And the reality is, other than Russia, they didn't. Yeah. And, you know, there's, there's this very, you know, you go to the end of the Communist Manifesto, it's basically proletariat revolt. 
which is written in the you know the 1840s, 1850s. And by World War One, those same people that Marx is writing to are now killing each other. Right. Uh, so there's so there's a sense of oh, the proletariat's not going to revolt. Why is that? Hmm. And, and and I think that's where critical theory and this this alternative way of looking for oppression comes in because it, there, there's not a sense that you're denying Marx's idea that there's economic oppression, mm. but are there other types of oppression that are keeping the proletariat from revolting? Yeah. And because why haven't they? And so then you start to deconstruct this, and this is the Frankfurt School that comes out of Germany in the 1930s, and then later they come to America in the 1940s. Right. And this idea that there must be uh, hegemony in places that are creating pe creating these narratives so that people who are being oppressed don't even know they're being oppressed. That must be why the proletariat's not rising up because they've so been conditioned by social constructs and language that they haven't revolted. So you can't allow Marx, so basically while critical theory can be a, an acceptance of Marx, it rejects his eschatology a little bit because yeah. it's saying, no, this isn't going to happen on its own. We have to make it happen in other ways. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's an interesting shift that takes place uh, in, 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 the, in the history of that thought process. Yeah. Well, that, that's true. And I, you know, you can't underestimate here the power of Darwin and the influence of evolution um, and certainly the Frankfurt School. And, and another name, which I think gets overlooked easily is Antonio Gramsci, the Italian dissident who Mussolini throws in prison in the 19, yeah. late 1920s, he'll die there. But his, his um, prison notebooks, you know, he, he yeah. seems to say that truth is a function of power. So, and, and I think this is where Marx probably laid the groundwork for his own demise in the way you're thinking, because you're, you're talking about Marx laying out this fairly objective um, eschatology yeah. that doesn't work. Um, but Marx, Marx claimed equally that the entire consciousness of the individual is determined by their mode of production. And so if Gramsci takes that a step further and goes, actually, everything you believe is really just a condition of your socioeconomic life, yeah. then, then really, yeah, ideas like liberalism will never get you anywhere because they're already too far downstream, right? You, you think about freedom because you were trained to think that way by your society, by your economics, your culture, where you raised the money you had as a child. So truth is no longer in the words, it's in the socioeconomic context that makes you. And I think this is Gramsci's idea of hegemony, that hegemonically, you've already been determined to think in a certain way. And so now, yes. now, yeah, now liberalism isn't an idea because all ideas are really just consequences of where you were raised in society or who your parents were, or how much money you had. And so, and what we've seen now too, which this, you know, again, for, for people like us who spend our time studying that period where classical liberalism is, is just, it's in the air. Now we've gotten to a point where um, that the, the liberalism, even those ideas in liberalism had oppressive ideas baked in, hmm. right? So to go back to the gentleman you just talked about, you can actually now see a critique from the, the, the new left to say, well, guess what? Uh, you know, when Jefferson wrote the, the Declaration of Independence, he was only talking about white men. Yeah. Right. That's an oppressive, oppressive idea. And uh, and, and so if you believe that this is for you and you're not a white man. You're 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 mistaken. Right. Mm -hmm. that, that's not going to happen for you. 
And I think that's that's a unique shift that's happened. I think where Dr. King, we've talked about this before, is saying, hey, we just want what's in the Declaration of Independence. And now there are people, some people who would say, you know, even that's flawed, right? Yeah. That's got racism baked into it. That has uh, homophobia baked into it. That has gender bias baked into it. And so uh, that's a new one. That's that's a new place to be uh, within the last 50 years yeah, yeah. Uh, since Dr. King passed. Uh, so that's that's where I think you're right. As historians, this is unsettling because we can't kind of point back and say, well, yeah, this is just blah, blah, blah. We, we kind of are in new territory yeah. with some of the dialogue. And, I think the other thing too, Dan, is the dialogue. Uh, this is conversation that's been in, happening in the ivory tower since the 1990s, yeah. and now it's hashtags. Yeah. You know, so it's 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 part of the popular. Yeah. You, know, the, you know, it's part of the populace now. Uh, so that's an interesting shift in itself, right? It's it's um, it's not just uh, something we would hear at some avant-garde academic paper we heard right. given right. somewhere right, right. It's, it's, right. It's, it's it's high school kids who have the the vocabulary um so i think this is where people are confused and i think if there's people who um if they're say older you know if they're if they're they're gen x's or millennials they're probably a little more comfortable swimming in these waters where i think if they're you know older than that this all just sounds really bizarre yeah uh they, they just don't know what to do with it right um, so let's let's use our last couple of minutes to just think about we we just laid out a lot of complex stuff, and and this is really just an introduction. We're going to go back and backfill this. So, yeah. Uh, but what what do we want to what would we want Christians listening to this to kind of help them process? Particularly, you know, the the rhetoric is going to be ratcheted up to new levels until election day, right. and you know it could be cold for a couple of weeks afterwards if it takes that long to count the ballots. So, right, uh, you have mail-in ballots, right? That yeah, yeah, yeah. And and so, how do we negotiate this? Yeah, I think that that's a that's a great question. I guess that's where we intend to go with all this. And I yeah, I think it's easy to um, distance yourself from it as a story and say. Theoretically, here's how I think it develops. And then to get down to the weeds and say, as a Christian, I am, and this is probably where it becomes confusing, because in the modern neo, new left liberalism, the, the, the moral code of it is love, at least that's a word that's used, it's care, it's empathy, it's concern, it's feeling for the oppressed, those that are, and I think every Christian can chase that down and agree with a few important caveats that the, what the world is looking at is a resolution that can be found somewhere here by rectifying all these inequalities. And, you know, I think it's interesting that scripture, as much as it talks about God's love for people, and there are a few instances where equality or an issue in front of Jesus, of course, Paul's clear that it's, you're neither male nor female nor Jew and Gentile, but scripture really never points to equality as an indication of God's love. And in fact, it's, it's actually quite, quite different than that. It usually points to authority as God's love. So God places people over the church and he places, you know, um, certain people in certain places in government over society so that God's love usually is translated into, by his own will, authoritative structures. And I think this is where it becomes particularly confusing for us as Christians, is we like the narrative of love and empathy and concern, and at the same time, we've got to find a way to keep God's order of authority somehow in place, knowing that authorities can abuse things. But at the same time, just because someone is given freedom and autonomy doesn't mean they're going to do what's best for their lives either. And I, I say that's individually and, and politically. I think we have to be really careful to listen out for 
when people make promises. Um, and I think, I think at least liberals in sort of the same way, we'll talk about them in the next one. So we're not leaving them, getting them off the hook, but liberals are, I think, easy, easily make a lot of promises that if you elect us and we get this passed, we're going to free everyone from whatever constraint they find is to ignore the fact that our true bondage is sin. <laughs> our true bondage is not outside of us. It's inside of us. And that's a, that's a radical thought. Not, not that we don't face external bondage. We certainly do. But the ultimate bondage is an internal bondage. It's a bondage to our own sin and death. Um, and so I think, I think very easily we get caught up in the promises of liberalism, which do sound good and are based on values that we really admire. But of course, they ignore the other half of the conversation, which is sin is the true enemy, not inequality. Um, that ultimately it can't be made right in this world. Oh, we should try. We should attempt. But it can't be because ultimately it's under Christ's kingship obedience to his rules and laws that true liberality is, is, is created or realized. So I, th I think that's maybe maybe part of, of how we negotiate this. Yeah. I'm not sure whether that gets it right or left. Or... No, it's good because I, I, I just I just read a quote from George Orwell and I, I don't have it here. I'll paraphrase it. But it's essentially this idea uh, that, uh, you know, inside every inside of a lot of liberals, uh, there are conservatives because liberals believe that if they can get a couple policies changed and a couple things in place, then we're good. And right. now we just got to maintain that. Right. And he said, the problem is that's never the case, right? There's always a new set of concerns, a new set of issues yeah. that we need to be aware of. Yeah. Uh, and I think we as Christians, when Jesus says, you will always have the poor, I think he's kind of tipping his hand to that one and saying, you're always going to have this group. You're not going to defeat these things. Right. Uh, so I think there's a, there's a realism there uh, that, that we need to embrace. But I think what I try to do with this is one, and obviously I don't, ex we, well, part of the reason we're doing this is because we don't expect everybody to, to know about the history of these things. Uh, so, but it's, it is to be informed, you know, where, where these ideas come from. Uh, and, and, and I think the key where, I'm, where I keep getting back more and more is how do we think Christianly about them? Um, you know, how do we think Christianly about the political ideas, the social ideas that are coming at us, and maybe even check ourselves and say, is my response coming from my political yeah. allegiance or my allegiance to Jesus? Right. Um, that's, that's where I think it becomes really hard in America because political dialogue is almost like its own religion. It's like football in Texas, yeah. right? It's an yeah, alternative yeah. religion. Um, and, and so I think that's, that's a tension. That's part of the we, have, we happen to be residing in a city of man uh, where politics is very intoxicating yeah. and, 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 and almost it is its own, it's a counter religion in many ways. Well, I mean, the promises are pretty, are pretty amazing. I mean, every election we've got ocean yeah. stabilizing, climates changing, yeah. poverty disappearing, health returning. I mean, we've got all these promises. I, I was just reading Harry Blameyer's um, British, uh, British apologist in his book on the Christian mind. And he says, at the root of it, thinking Christianly means that your scale is eternal. Thinking secularly means that your scale is temporal. And I know that's overly simplistic, but I, I want to confirm something you're saying there. And I think that is to think Christianly is to take whatever the parties are talking about off of a stage that is limited to birth and death and put it onto a stage where you've got an eternal plan of God from before the foundation of the world yeah, to yeah. his kingdom afterwards. And to your point, you know, if God's rectifying and his view of justice is that broad, while we can work for it now, and I think I agree with the, the liberal on that, that we ought to work for justice and equality, 
the idea that that somehow we're going to achieve this, like you said, we're going to pass the policy that gets this done is to ignore the fact that it won't be done here and now. And it's not going to be done tomorrow. It's not going to be done in the next 10 years and no politician will achieve it. And, and I'll tell you, Mark, where I think this is very important for Christians uh, on top of our theological perspective is that, the, and I don't deny fighting for these things, but the harder you fight for them, there's always unintended consequences. And I think this is what I, I realized in my history. I, I appreciate the French Revolution. I, I can even appreciate what Mao was doing in China to overcome a lot of inequities there, or Stalin, if you can appreciate some of it. But the harder they pushed to solve these problems, the unintended consequences grew astronomically. Mm-hmm. So that the more they work to end inequality uh, with power, the more problems they, I mean, they destroy entire agricultural systems, farming systems, lives, you know, and, and you can blame them morally, but I think there's an insidious problem here. And that is the harder you push to use power to solve the world's problems, the more you create consequences you did not expect at all and things that you actually can't control. I, I'm be very cautious around politics. I, I'm going to throw out a very dorky theological term here, but that's quite me boring of you guys. Right. <laughs> um, I mean, I'll because that, that. what's that? I'll accept that. Yeah, yeah it, it, because that is kind of what Reinhold Niebuhr was saying in a lot of his work within Christian realism, that you know, even when we have good intentions and we try to resolve problems, oftentimes because of our own hubris, uh, our own short-sightedness, we actually create new sets of problems. Right. And, and I think, and maybe that's kind of what Orwell was getting at as well, that you're always going to have these, you know, these sets of issues. There's always going to be something. It's, right. it's, it's the uh, it's the line for men in black, right? That you know, there's always a catastrophe about right. to happen, right? right. So, um, so I, I think, but I, I like that idea of thinking about this internally, um, but also too, uh, at a time like this, maybe sometimes it's just listening to people who are hurting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's, well, but that but that's important because that really our eternal plan or the eternal scheme holds every individual with the image of God in it. Yeah. And we don't know when, you know, the writer of uh, Proverbs says this, you know, God put eternity in our hearts and did not teach us what God was doing from the beginning to the end. So we don't know. Yeah. So in one sense, I think what bothers me about liberalism and equally about conservatism at times is the certainty of it all, which actually when we become overly certain, we stop loving our neighbor because we're certain they're that bad or that wrong. And yeah, <laughs> I, yeah and I think uncertainty plays an important role for a Christian to say, you know, I don't know what God's doing with you. But I disagree with you and God loves you, so I'm going to have to treat you with respect and dignity. And I, I'll, yeah. I'll go to what you're saying there and, and say that humility is a, is a crucial function of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. And yeah. he or she never becomes so certain of their political ideology that that becomes the new gospel they won't compromise. Yeah. yeah. And, well, and I think I that's think, what's happened in this new moment. And, and maybe part of it, too, Dan, is it's not just I'm so certain I know you're evil. Uh, but also I'm so certain that you're right, that I will follow you blindly. Yeah, or right. you, we will, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll march in that blindly, right? It, it cuts both ways. It really right. does. You, you need to hold some things in tension. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, well, this is good. This is good. good. And yeah. we will, uh, again, we will backfill some of this and, and kind of create some definitions, uh, but sort of just follow the storyline of, of how, liberalism as, a, as an ideology and conservatism as an ideology developed over time. And then we and kind of, how did we get to the, how do we get here? You know, that's, that's kind of what we want to be able to help. It keeps us with the metaphor of navigation, which I think is really important because yeah. it keeps us from having to draw, which is not a, a healthy thing, drawing really clear 
decisions about what to do. And really we're just asking how to navigate this because it's going to be a wild ride until Christ returns. And I think that's part of our worldview in that regard. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's a great way to end. Well, thanks, Mark. Yeah, thank you.